E, I was um, in a cafe the other day. <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> You'll keep. And I was served by this chap who had a tattoo running from his wrist to his shoulder. And I was trying to work out what it was, but it looked like dragons and there was a cross and there was all sorts of other things going on. It was quite the work of art. And it's one of the things I think has changed in the last decade or two or three. The amount of people who have ink. Now, when I was a lad, having tattoos suggested that you had been or were in the military, that you had been or were in a gang of some sort, or you'd done time in prison. Now, I watched um, Sons of Anarchy, um, which is one of my favourite programmes at one stage, and I learned something interesting. There's the mongrel mob um, patch. Apparently, the patch on your back is, is tattooed, that you wear on your jacket is tattooed on you. So when a chap left the Sons of Anarchy, they blacked it all out. Tattoo black. Looked horrible. Anyway, tattoos in those days, they suggested that you saw yourself as something of an outsider. But, but not so much now. I heard the story of a petty officer in the New Zealand Navy who would quite often go up to China and uh, Hong Kong and places like that. And he had these Chinese characters tattooed on his forearm. And he'd go into the Chinese takeaway and he'd pull back his shirt and he'd just go like that. And apparently it was half a dozen wontons plus some egg foo young and a beef and black bean sauce. You wouldn't want to change your tastes, <laughs> would you? Nowadays, I think tats are much more about self-expression. They call it body art. Sometimes it's an expression of identity, but it's not necessarily that outlaw thing anymore. People may tattoo the names of their kids on themselves. Many Christians I know have tattoos like that. It might be the Hebrew letters of Yahweh, the Hebrew name of God, or a, or a Celtic cross, or a significant verse. It's not this act of social defiance that it used to be. I think if I'd gone home with a tattoo at 15, I probably would have been, the suggestion would have been made, I might like to find other places to live. Often I think it's like a memorial, a reminder to myself that no matter whatever happens, I am a child of God, or I am the parent of these kids. This is who I am. Now there are other ways to do this. For millennia, Jewish people have worn these little boxes on their arms and on their foreheads. They're called tefillin or phylacteries. Phylactery sounds like a disease. You know, you'd be limping along and say, what's wrong son? Oh, I've got a really bad phylactery. But no, it's these little boxes. And within these little boxes, there are verses from the Torah, the Old Testament. And you'd often, if you went to a Jewish synagogue on, a, on the Sabbath or a holy day, you'd see folk wearing these. And the origin of this custom is found in several passages in Exodus 13, which set out um, the details of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. So that's no, no um, 
What's this stuff? Yeast. So it's flat and it's thick. Horrible stuff. No leavened bread shall be seen in your possession, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory. You shall tell your child on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall serve for you as a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead so that the teaching of the Lord may be on your lips. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall keep this ordinance at its proper time from year to year. Hmm. Hand. Forehead. Verse 9 is repeated in verse 16. Really wanted people to get the point. Then again in Deuteronomy 6, which contains the Shema, this incredibly important foundational passage in the Jewish religion. Now this is the commandment, the statute and the ordinances, that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy. This is Moses speaking. So that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life. Keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so it may go well with you, and so you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Now here's the bit. Hear, O Lord, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Sometimes in translation it be the Lord is one. Foundational thing about Judaism. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And again, that verse 8 up there is repeated in Deuteronomy 11. Okay. Leaping forward, about 1,200 years, we're landing in the time that the book of Revelation was written. Maybe 90, maybe 95 AD, somewhere around there. John is writing to these little fellowships, little churches, maybe 30 people each, scattered around what is now the western end of Turkey. So that's these ones here, and John is in exile because he'd annoyed the Romans a bit much. He's on this little island here. And if you look at the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and 3, there's a little note to each of these churches, encouraging them, um, rebuking them, whatever. Turkey is part of the Roman Empire, which is then ruled by the Emperor Domitian. Now, at this time, the Roman Empire is just about as big as it's ever going to get. But it's pretty big. You've got Britain, France, Spain, Italy, the Balkans, a fair bit of North Africa, Turkey, a fair bit of Arabia. And it's ruled by a guy called Domitian. Now, Domitian, even by Roman emperor standards, is very much an autocrat. He likes things done his way when he wants them. 
And in order to try to maintain control, he presents himself and his family to the people as a god. The churches, these churches were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But recent research would indicate that probably the Christian church was still quite Jewish at this point. If you look at where the um, Christian churches did, did well in the first and second century, they tend to follow where there were big Jewish communities. So it's probable they're made up of Jewish converts or Gentiles who have sort of become Jews and then become Christians. So these young churches would have been had lots of people in them who were steeped in the Old Testament. That stuff I was just reading out to you from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Now Rome's economic power really was all over the empire. It was all embracing. And the symbolism, the emperor's image is there, and all that symbolism, you know, the lines coming out like the sun and all that, that's supposed to convey the idea that he's a god. So to oppose the empire was both a political act of rebellion, but also a religious one. So they're sort of up in the ante. And the Romans thought, well, look, if you're going to keep an empire together, you've got to have a basic level of religious unity. And so what they said is, each year, once a year, you come along to the town square, you light a candle or you doff your cap to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. Rest of the time you can do what you like as long as the police don't have to be called, basically. The Jews had an exemption from that but the Christians didn't. So their political loyalty was always a bit questionable. Now there are several warnings in these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 about eating food that had been offered to idols. Now most likely, this refers to their custom in those days of having guild feasts. So a couple of times a year, if you were a chippy or a sparky in Ephesus, all the chippies or all the sparkies would get together. You'd have a, a big feast, There'd be a devotion to the goddess Diana, the food would be blessed and in her name, and in the way of those times, possibly it would end up like an orgy by the end of it. But if you did not attend, you could not be a chippy or a sparky. So Christians back then had to make their living on the fringe of society if they didn't want to compromise their faith. And we've got these certificates that we've, um, have been dug up, which say that you know, X has paid his, made his sacrifice to Caesar in this, the year, this year. A little bit, I suppose, like an American green card. It gives you the ability to work. Well, 25 to 30 years before all of this, this joker had been the emperor. His name was Nero. He was vicious and he was bloodthirsty. And by the look on the lightness on the left, he's a ginger, which is a lesson. <laughs> He'd become something of a Hitler figure. You know how um, the Pol Pot ran amok in Cambodia, killed an awful lot of people in the 1970s, and he was described as a Hitler, or a type of Hitler. Well, a persecuting emperor was a Nero. He set the benchmark. And the persecution was returning. 
In Revelation 2.13, John mentions a guy called Antipas who's just been executed. And he says in Revelation 3.10, essentially persecution's coming back. And he was right, it did, under Domitian. So this is sort of the backstory into which John wrote Revelation. And its overall message, I know there's a lot of argument about the detail, but the overall message is, I think, quite clear. Hang on and trust that no matter how bad things might get, God is still in control and will ultimately triumph. That's the Reader's Digest take, I think, on Revelation. It was a message of hope to a very nervous and worried people, and they had every reason to be nervous and worried. They were the small little vulnerable fish swimming in a shark tank. Okay, so John prophesies here in Revelation 13. Need a drink of water for this one. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and the mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave it its power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth utterly haughty that's proud and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered, let anyone who has an ear listen. If you go back and read Revelation 12, particularly verse 9, it's clear that the dragon is Satan, who is an authority over the beast. The beast has diadems, or crowns on its horns. It's aggressive and powerful and proud. It's blasphemous as it receives worship due to God. It's dominant over the world, and it's persecuting the church. And I feel certain that the believers in Ephesus, Laodicea, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Tyra, and Smyrna, who this book was originally written to, would have been clear who the beast was. It was Rome. Rome was all these things. John continues. There, there's a pick of it. You wouldn't want to run into that in a dark night. If you are to be taken captive into captivity you go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Hang on to Jesus even in the face of death. I guess when you're in exile on an island and you're facing death, you can say that. Hang on. John knows this from his own experience. Tradition tells us that all of the other 11 apostles and Paul were martyred for their faith. He was literally 
last man standing. And he continues. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I think those Jewish Christians would have recognised this very florid, very symbolic, very colourful style of language as being a lot like the visions that were in the book of Daniel. It's called apocalyptic writing. And Daniel, the beasts there, which are also likened to wild animals, are actually described as kingdoms. John continues. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand, or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666, which, funnily enough, used to be the um, security code on my credit card, much to the amusement of all my children. The mark of the beast, 666, stamped on our wrist or on our forehead in chapter 14. Then I looked and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, Jesus. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So everyone's got a mark on their forehead. And later in chapter 14, another angel followed them, crying with a loud voice, those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now when I first stumbled into the church as a new believer in the mid-80s, this mark of the beast end time stuff was talked about an awful lot. When there was a proposal to have smart cards which would have your um, government benefit information on with money that you could use like a debit card. People say, ha ha, it's the start. FPOS cards, well that's dodgy. Because eventually they'll just give you a chip and they'll slip it in your wrist. Which for someone like me who's always losing their wallet would be quite convenient. The barcodes were put onto grocery products and apparently embedded in those barcodes were the numbers 666. Debate raged about who was the Antichrist. In the 70s, it had been Kissinger. 80s, Gorbachev, because he had that thing on his forehead. Uh, and if you search Google Image now for Antichrist, you'll find either Obama or Trump. You've really made it in politics when you show up on those searches, I think. Many people were genuinely scared. Now we have a pandemic. And I've been told that there are nanoparticles in the vaccine floating around inside me. And that is a precursor to receiving the mark of the beast. The effects of the mandates are said to be akin to Revelation 13, 17, in which people with the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell stuff. Some Christians are worried that in all of this, if they do the wrong thing, they will somehow lose their salvation, that God will abandon them. Now remember at the beginning, I talked about the teflon or the phylacteries, the 
that faithful Jews wear. The word of God on their forehead and on their arms. Do you wonder why they do that? I think the symbolism there is that my thoughts, my forehead and my deeds through my hands reflect the word of God, the spirit of God, the heart of God. These little, verse, little boxes are a sort of visual tactile reminder to keep walking in the way of God through life. Like the cross tattoo that reminds me that I am a follower of Jesus. And remember also, I said there would have been a very significant Jewish cultural presence in these little churches. So the mark of the beast and the mark of God being on your forehead or wrist would have made sense to them. They would have got the scriptural connections that I've outlined for you today. If your thoughts and actions are aligned with God, then you are being saved. If your thoughts and actions are aligned with the evil world system, in this case the Roman Empire, then you are not. Because remember, both the followers of the beast and the followers of God have marks on their foreheads. Now, final point, this six-six thing is a puzzle. And one of the things we know about apocalyptic literature is that numbers are used not very literally, they're used very symbolically. So the 144,000 believers that I referred to in Revelation 14.1 does not mean that there is a numerical cap on the number of God's people. If you are the 144,000th and first person to show up, they will not be saying, no, nah, sorry, don't have a seat for you. Most likely it stands for the complete, the whole, the entire. 12 apostles times by 12 tribes is 144. That's probably what it means. It's not as literal as the Jehovah's Witnesses would have you believe. Now in the ancient Near East, the number seven was seen as a perfect number. So perhaps 666 means imperfect, always just missing the mark. Now, if you added up the numerical value of all the letters of Roderick James Robson, which I'm sure you've done, <laughs> I did it yesterday, you get the number 214. Yeah, that's A to 1, Z to 26, that style. Remember how I said that the epitome of evil in those days was the brutal Nero? Well, in Greek, if you take the numerical value of the letters of his full name, which is Caesar Neron, it adds up to 6. Six, six. Maybe this was a sneaky way of being rude about the emperor, which Christian people receiving this book would understand, but an imperial censor reading the mail between Patmos and Turkey would have thought, what's all this about? This is religious gobbledygook about beasts and numbers, rather than actually being a quite subversive critique of the Roman Empire. God is not going to cut you loose if you get vaccinated, if you get a 666 tattoo on your forehead, but don't do that, it'd be a really silly thing to do, but, or a microchip in your wrist. He's not letting you go. But as I've wrestled with um, perseverance and the faithfulness of God, I think the way I understand this is, and there's a tension there, 
that if we let God go for all time, he will honour that choice. Well, in the year 90 AD, the beast was the Roman Empire. It was brutal and exploitative, unless you happened to be on the 1% on top, in which case it would have been great. When I was young, communism ruled one-third of the world. It was like the beast in its authoritarian impulses and its persecution of believers. Before them, it was European colonisation, dominating and exploiting whole continents, our modern Western capitalist individual thing is probably another manifestation of the beast. It's the dominant ethos of the world that stands against the people of God. We are called as his people to worship him and to live in the light of his word, Jesus Christ, and in the light of the words of Scripture. Living that way will put us at odds with whatever the prevailing world system is. And we should expect that. Revelation's message, I respectfully submit, is not about barcodes or tattoos. It's about having hope that ultimately God will will out and persevering when things are not going well for the church. 90 AD was such a time. And so is today as the church in the West is sharply declining. So in terms of the words that are on my coffee cup, we need to keep calm and carry on. Amen. Could the musicians come up? We're going to finish our service.